when we were singing this morning, and this happens often during worship, but I've been thinking about this the last week or so as well. I, I love Christmas songs. I mean, especially the ones we sing here. I mean, I like Winter Wonderlands, that stuff too. But mainly the ones that point us to Christ and, and his coming and the reason he came and what he came to accomplish. And as we were singing this morning, I was, it just struck, struck my mind. Do we hear what we're singing? Do we understand the, the things that we are singing about? Uh, we sang about, he knows our need. To our weakness, he's no stranger. Behold your king. Before him, lowly bend. I mean, did anyone else here this morning as we're singing that just feel like getting on your knees and, bend, and bending the knee before your king, Jesus Christ? I hope at least everyone here in their hearts, their hearts were bent before Jesus, your king. Worship is what Advent is all about. Advent is this Christmas season where we remember the birth of Jesus, the first coming. That's what Advent means. It's the Latin word that means coming or the arrival. We look back to the first coming of Jesus. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And the whole, I would say the overarching purpose is worship. God wants you and I to come into the white-hot, joyful worship of the Lord Jesus. I say white-hot, with burning hearts, with hearts aglow, with hearts on fire for Jesus, and joyful worship of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, that is what we are made for. We are made for worship. We belong to God. We exist for God and for his glory. And therefore, we exist to worship him. When Jenny, uh, no, uh, Reed was, uh, during his prayer, he was talking about just the, the trials that we go through. No doubt we do. But do you think Mary went through trials? Probably depth of trial that we don't know anything about. And yet she worshipped. Do you think that the shepherds had trials? They worshipped. Do you think the wise men had trials? They worshipped. We are made for worship. We all are worshipers. I I mean, we worship something or someone. The question is what? Do we worship God and do we worship Christ? Of course, by worship, I don't mean just singing songs but a life that flows from a heart that is glowing and burning for Jesus Christ. So a life that flows, of course, it will include singing. It'll include speaking. It'll include living a life of sacrificial love and deeds of mercy done for others. It'll be a life of loving God and loving other people, to sum it up. We were made for worship. And when we look at the gospel accounts surrounding the coming of Jesus into the world, those to whom Jesus was revealed, you know what they do? They worship. In every instance, they worship. It's amazing. In Luke chapter 1, you know, Mary had gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, 
And when she came in the door and greeted, Mary, or greeted Elizabeth, it says, when Elizabeth heard her greeting, the baby inside of her leaped for joy. And Elizabeth said, what a blessing that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me. How did she know that? They didn't have email back then. Didn't get out on Facebook, right? The Lord revealed to her. And when Elizabeth prophesied this over Mary, you know what Mary did? She worshiped. She sang a song. It's called Mary's Magnificat. At least that's what it's been traditionally called in Luke chapter 1. And the opening lines are this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She worships. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, at the birth of his son, his tongue is loosed, and he begins to bless God and praise his name. And the opening words of his prophecy is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. I love what he says next. For he has visited and redeemed his people. He praises God. He he turns to worship. In Luke chapter 2, of course, this is probably the most well-known one, the one that comes to mind. There's even Christmas songs about it. When the angel appears to to the shepherds, keeping watch over their sheep, late at night or sometime at night, it was dark out, the glory of the Lord shone around, the angel of the Lord, and he announced the birth of the Son, of the Christ, of the King. And as soon as he does that, it says a a host of angels joined him. Now, we don't know how many, but a host is a lot, right? A bunch of them. They gathered with this angel of the Lord, and they begin singing a song. This had to have been the greatest worship concert ever. And they sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Hebrews chapter 1 says, uh, describes that event this way. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Well, Matthew chapter 2 has become probably the last few years my favorite of all of the Christmas narratives, the narratives in the New Testament of the coming of Christ and the events surrounding it. This story is about some extremely unlikely people who are drawn to Jesus to worship him. Here we see the activity of God drawing people to the true king, and we see it through the eyes of these men, the wise men. Might have been three, might have been eight, who knows? Doesn't say for sure. Just Just there are more than one. God wants this morning to take this word and drive it deep into our hearts to fill us with loving awe for Jesus. And that's what worship is, really. It is love, joy, and awe. It's not a giddy kind of love, like, you know, you're excited for pizza tonight or something. It's, it's something far deeper than that. It's, it's love and joy and awe at Jesus. So he wants to fill us with worship. So let, let me read verses one and two again, and then I want to work through this text 
and ask three questions about the wise men. Number one, who they were, or who were, who were these guys? Number two, why did they come? And number three, what happened when they encountered Jesus? So verses one and two of Matthew chapter two again says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. First question, who were these guys? Who were these wise men? Our our text describes them as wise men from the east. But I mean, honestly, to describe them as wise men probably isn't the most helpful the Greek word from which wise men comes from is magos. So the New American Standard actually translates this, instead of wise men, translates it magi. What these guys were is they were magicians. They were priests in the occult, experts in astrology and magic and divination. Blatant violators of Old Testament law. But these guys were seeking after Jesus. These men were drawn to the Savior. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you, when you think, you probably know someone like this. I mean, sometimes we think, well, I grew up in church. I grew up in a fairly religious home. And, and so it's not that unlikely that I came to know Jesus. But we probably all, all know somebody who says, oh my gosh, them? That's crazy. That was these guys. That was these guys. It would be like those, those people that do tarot cards and read people's palms and stuff like that, coming to Christ to worship him. It says that they were from the east, probably either from Persia or Babylon. Persia is probably the, a, a good candidate because there would have been Old Testament Jewish scriptures there from the exile. The question I, I asked was, or just thought about this week was, how do these men end up in Jerusalem and then to the home of Bethlehem where Jesus was? Of course, we're told that there was a star that rose in the east. And again, once they were in Jerusalem, the star led them to Bethlehem and then rested over the home where Jesus was. But that's all we know for sure. Some have suggested that because these men perhaps had access to Old Testament scriptures, that they studied Old Testament prophecies, like like there's one in Numbers chapter 24 that speaks of a star rising, leading to Jacob or leading to Israel. And because of their study of the sky and astrological phenomena, they kind of connected the dots and said, oh, what this is talking about Numbers relates to this star. We don't know for sure. We We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that a star arose in the east and it led them to Jerusalem and eventually led them to Bethlehem. We don't know if the star led them by day and night, like directions, like Google map directions, turn here, go straight for 250 miles. We don't know anything like that. We don't know exactly how the star rested over the place where Jesus was. The Bible tells us that a star led them, however, okay? And here's one thing we know for sure. There's only one person from the biblical perspective who can manipulate the stars. And who's that? It's God, right? The stars belong to him and he leads them. 
Think of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. It says, lift up your eyes and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I believe God revealed this star to lead some foreigners to the son of God. God was behind it all. God was behind it all. God showed them the star in their homeland and directed them to Jerusalem. God directed the star to lead them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. God caused the star to rest over the place where the child was. God himself influenced the stars in the sky to lead a small group of foreign pagan magicians the least likely kinds of men to the son of God. And quite frankly, I think each one of us, this ought to cause us to step back with deep encouragement. If you step back and ask the question, why am I here? And I don't mean physically here at Real Life Church in this building right now. But why am I here spiritually believing in Jesus today? Why do I believe in him? Why am I, if if you do, why am I trusting him? Why do I believe what this book says? And at the end of the day, underneath and behind all of the events of your conversion is a God influencing those events to draw you to the son. Jesus clearly said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. No one can come to me. These magi couldn't come to Jesus and you couldn't come to Jesus unless the father himself, God the father, were drawing you. So if you ask the question, why am I here? Why am I believing in Christ? Why do I stand as a believer in Jesus Christ today? Your answer should be, be something like this, because God led me here. Because God in his grace led me, just like he led the wise men with a star to the Savior, he led me here. And it's amazing how, again, it was was this, this group of pagan occult worshipers that God was drawing to the Son, Reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when Paul talking to the Corinthians, just to help them not be puffed up in terms of what they know and who they are, he says this, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are strong and mighty. God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God chose the things that are not to put to nothing the things that are so that no one may boast in the presence of God. When we see these magi drawn to the Savior, you know what it ought to cause us to do? Lift our eyes and say, God, you are amazing. That you would draw these people who in and of themselves would not have been looking for you. And God, you're amazing for drawing me when I would not have been looking for you to yourself. Question number two, why did these guys come to Jerusalem and then 
to Bethlehem. What, what was the reason for their travels? Well, the Magi make it clear that they have come in response to the fact that a king had recently been born. It's not uncommon for foreign dignitaries to visit a new king when he comes into power. But what is uncommon, and there's lots of things uncommon about this story, but what's one thing that's very uncommon is that they traveled hundreds of miles on camels, by foot. It was a hard journey. They didn't hop in a car. They didn't hop on a plane. It was a challenging journey that took probably months. So just sidebar real quick, okay? Nativity scenes that have the shepherds and the, and the wise men together. The wise men weren't, weren't there at the same, the same night as the shepherds, okay? They showed up months later, maybe even a year and a half later. So why did these guys come, though? They came for this king that was born. Here's the strange thing. Jesus was king at his birth. I mean, it's very common for a prince to be born, right? I mean, prince, any, any son of a king and queen would be born prince. What is very uncommon is that Jesus, at his birth, is crowned king. Jesus, as a little child, is crowned king. Charles Wesley understood the wonder of this when he wrote, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The angels' report to the shepherds seems to strike a similar note when they said, For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, at his birth, was born Lord. He didn't become Lord. He didn't become king. He was Lord and king. And he had entered into the world. What else is strange about this story? What else seems strange about this story is that their reason for traveling so far was not merely to visit and honor this king. It wasn't merely to give gifts pay homage to a king. These men come to Jerusalem and announce this. We have come to worship the king of the Jews. You just think about that for a moment. Little child. Okay. So I don't know if this, this star rose the night that Jesus was born. And, and then after, after, after studying and, and travels and whatever, Jesus was a one-year-old. Who knows? We don't know exactly for sure. Some, 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 he was the eight, he was under two. Okay. We know that. I think, um, how, how sure, how sure do I sound about that? He, he's under two. And these wise men <clears throat> say this little child is the King of the Jews and we are coming to worship him. Does that sound strange to you? Okay. It does to me. It does to me. Their business was urgent and serious and holy. It was revolved around worship. They had come to worship. And they said, where is this king? Where is he? We want to worship him. So it's not just that God had led this foreign band of magicians to Jerusalem to see the son of God. He had put it in their hearts to worship the son of God. John chapter four, Jesus, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. 
And Jesus says to her, the father seeks worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and truth. The Magi came seeking to worship Jesus because God the Father was first seeking out worshipers over in Babylon to come and glorify his son. These Magi come, these magicians come with reverential awe. They don't, I can't imagine they understood all that the scribes would have understood about the the Messiah. They certainly didn't understand what we know of Jesus, this side of the cross, but they come to worship. But we actually see two other groups of people in the story and how they respond is very different. The first group, actually just one person is Herod. And here's what we see about Herod. He heard of this king that was born and it says this, he was troubled. He and all of Jerusalem with him. Herod heard of the birth of Christ and immediately felt that his power was being threatened by this king. It's very interesting. Verse 1 of our text says, During the days of, ki- of Herod, the king, these magi come and say, We have come to worship the king of, of the Jews. The word uh, troubled actually means terrified or filled with dread. Herod was a, actually a good politician and in, in some ways endeared himself to his constituents. He, he, he did things that helped them. He had a good, we might call it, welfare program for the poor and so forth. But when it came to defending his throne, he was cruel and unusual in his punishment of those that he felt were a threat. He actually killed several members of his own family who he thought were plotting against him, including at least two of his sons. He was not a good guy, okay? And so when he heard that Jesus was born, one thing entered his mind. This king must be eliminated. He must be taken out. Later in in the chapter here, Matthew chapter 2, we see that... uh, When Herod finds out that he was tricked by the the Magi, they don't go back and tell him where Christ is. He, He goes into a murderous rage and sends his soldiers to the Bethlehem region and says, kill every boy two years and under. Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. For Herod, this meant Jesus Christ had to be had to be utterly destroyed. Of course, later in his life, the Jewish leaders also conspired to take Jesus out. But this time, because it was God's plan for Jesus to die for the sins of the world, they actually did. They took him out. He was crucified on a cross. When I read through this about Herod and his response to Jesus, it makes me think of the fact that every national ruler, every state senator, every local mayor, And every single individual, including you and me, must come face to face with the fact that Jesus is king. Does that threaten you? I'm just going to be honest. There are times I'm like, but I want to be king. I want my kingdom to expand and grow. 
Sometimes Jesus is a threat even to nice Midwestern Christians. And what we want compared to what Jesus wants. Will we usurp his authority? Will we seek to destroy his rule? Or will we bow humbly before him? Herod, anxiously, anxious, excuse me, anxious for the perpetuation of his own rule, sought to kill the child. But there's another group of people. And actually, their response to, about the birth of Jesus, I find even more troubling. And it was the Jewish religious leaders. When Herod heard that the Christ had been born, he called the scribes and the chief priests to him. And he wanted to know where is the Christ to be born. And they tell him in Bethlehem. And remember, it wasn't just Herod that was troubled at the the announcement of Christ's birth. It was all Jerusalem. So these religious leaders had heard that supposedly their Messiah had been born. And after telling Herod where the Christ is, what do they do? Do they run with all their might? To Bethlehem, about five miles journey away. No, they don't. Do they jump up and down and say, he's come, he's come, oh, he's finally come. No, they don't do that either. Do they, do they announce to their friends or those that, they, those that they were leaders of, our Messiah has come, let's go and greet him. Do they fall down on their knees in praise to God that he has finally sent the long-awaited Savior. They don't do any of those things. What do they do? Well, as far as we can tell, they don't do anything. They go back to business as usual. I don't know, utter indifference, apathy, I'm not sure. And here's what's frightening is they went back to all of their religious activity. This, the one that all of their religious activity was to center around, had come, supposedly. At least, there was rumors of it. And they didn't seem to care. Does this chasten you like it does me? We can be busy, lots of activity, even lots of good spiritual activity. I mean, the scribes and the chief priests, they understood, obviously it would have been the Old Testament. They had large portions of it memorized. And they missed the fact that the Messiah had come. They didn't even care. It's It's like they could do religion without him. We talk about and engage in holy things here. Drawing near to God, singing, sitting under his word. Christ has come and he's died and rose again. And are we going to, do we come to him? Do we come to him? Or do we just go through the motions? Religious activity. 
the Magi came to worship, Herod had fierce opposition to Jesus, and the religious Jewish leaders just seemed to be indifferent, as far as I can tell. And I think every person in this room and every person in the world falls into one of those three categories. Is Jesus your king that you worship? Is he someone you want to get rid of? Just block him out of our minds. And even, I want to go to heaven, but block him out of my I don't want him like ruling my life. Or, or is, it, is he just irrelevant? The Magi came to worship him. Question number three, what happened when the Magi encountered Jesus? So they go on their way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the star going before them, and then suddenly the star rested over the home where where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the child, were. And at this moment, what is happening in their hearts when they see the star resting over that place? Verse 10 tells us, here's what it says. When they saw the star resting over the house, here's what it says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly. And they didn't just have great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Sounds kind of redundant. I know. It does, right? We have ways of intensifying our speech, right? We get loud, or if we're writing an email, we'll put something in bold, or we use lots, lots of exclamation points, which is, can be really annoying if... Anyways, if you do that, I'm sorry. Um, exclamation points, all capital, underlined things, italicized, all these ways of intensifying our speech. Well, Jewish writers did that as well. And they would repeat things. They would use redundant phraseology. And that's what I think Matthew's doing here. To express the depth of their joy. And their rejoicing that they had come to the place where this king was. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like saying they were really, really, super-duper, deeply rejoicing in the fact that they had come to this place. They were rejoicing with overflowing and mega joy. And what happens next? It's astonishing. They went into the house with mega joy in their hearts, And they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down. These were sophisticated men, grown men, falling down before a little child. Maybe a child that wasn't even quite potty trained. 
running around, just learning to speak a little bit, saying mama, dad, dad. They see this child and they hit the ground. Sophisticated, intelligent, dignified men. What do they see in this child? I mean, I don't know for sure. We don't, we don't know for sure. But I can tell you this. When people come into the presence of a holy God all throughout the Bible, you know what they do? They hit the ground. They fall flat down on the ground. They did not jump up and down, pumping their fists in the air. They fell down before this child. Think of the words of Charles Hymns or Charles Wesley's Christmas hymn. Hark the held angels sing. There's this line that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You guys like watching movies? <clears throat> I like good movies. I like I, I like good I like good movies that 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 fill you with awe because of the themes or because of you know whatever. The reason we go to movies is to be filled with awe, oftentimes, or warm warm fuzzies if you like the Hallmark movies and stuff like that. Um, but we love being filled with awe. The best, most awe inspiring movie that's ever been made does not compare with the strangeness and the uniqueness of the Christian story. It just doesn't. God himself walking around this little house. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. At that moment, I think, this child, this is the way I I take it, walking around the house at that moment, was upholding the universe. And these wise men, these magi come into this house and they see the child and they, they brought gifts. I'm sure they were thinking we're going to bring gifts to this, this king. But they walk into the presence of the holy God incarnate and they fall down and worship him. Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, sees a burning bush. God speaks to him. He says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. He takes it off. God begins to speak to him more. Eventually, Moses falls on his face. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple as this this Christophany or this, this vision of pre-incarnate Jesus and the seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah falls down. John in Revelation has a vision of Christ. And what does he do? He falls down like a dead man. Peter, before Jesus, as he walked the earth, when, when, when Jesus said, hey, you've been fishing all night, I know, but cast your net the other side of the boat. Trust me, you'll catch some fish. And they catch hundred bunch of fish. And what does Peter do? He falls down. It says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. 
These magi fall down. I think it's, I think it's important that it says they fell down. With hearts aglow with joy, they fall down in reverent, awe-inspiring worship. After this, it says they opened up their treasures and offered him gifts. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the gifts that they brought, expensive gifts, the gifts that they brought did, their treasures did not compare with the treasure that they had found in Christ. I don't think the Magi understood the significance of their gifts. But I think these gifts show us the kind of king that Jesus is. Let me explain. First, I I think that these gifts show that Jesus is the kind of king who in this present age advances his kingdom. It extends and advances not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. What is myrrh? One of these gifts that the wise men brought. Myrrh is a resin substance used for making burial spices, used for embalming a dead body. When Jesus' body was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, it says that Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from John John chapter 3? Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes for the body of Jesus. I believe myrrh points us to the death of Christ. And we know that Jesus came into the world not just to give us sentimental feelings, but to die for us. That's why he came. The Son of God came into the world to die for sinners. Paul tells us that Jesus did not come to die for good people, but for bad people, for the unrighteous, for tax collectors. That's, that's what the Bible says, okay? If anyone here works for a tax agency, okay, they're not picking on you. Uh, tax collectors and enemies of God, those who are hostile to God and his ways. Jesus died for them. Jesus put it this way. He said, those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And so the only people who are forbidden to come to Jesus are those who think they are too good for him and too righteous to need him. But any and every person who knows their own sin is welcome to come. Amen? Amen. Jesus came into the world to save, uh, Jesus came into the world to do for sinners and enemies what they couldn't do for themselves. He came to make sinners and enemies saints and friends through his own death. Jesus died for people like the Magi. Jesus died for people like you and me. But the treasures that the Magi brought also show us that Jesus is a king above all other kings. He's not just the king of the Jews. 
the Magi came. They said, we, we are here to worship the king of the Jews. And this, this, is, this is speculation, I understand. But when, when they fell down, I think they understood this is not just, this is not just the king of the Jews. Their treasures, their gifts for Jesus show us that his kingdom will advance to the ends of the earth and be known among all the peoples of the world. Isaiah prophesies of all nations coming to Israel's king in in Isaiah chapter 60. Listen to what it says. All nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Sounds like the rising of this, this star, right? Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you and young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The Magi come looking for the king of the Jews and they find not merely the king of the Jews, but their own king and the king of all the nations, and the king of all the world, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, the one who will reign forever and ever. And when we look through the Bible, and we see what God's intention in the redeeming work of Christ is, It is to draw all the nations of the world. I don't mean every single individual person, but all the different peoples of the world to his son in worship and glory and honor. This king is a king of all the peoples and all the nations, and they will come and bow before him. This king is one that every single individual will bend the knee to. And we need to listen to this. We need to hear this. Every single person will bow their knee to Jesus, either as a joyful, willing worshiper and friend, or as a defeated enemy. Every person will bow their knee to Christ, The star that led these foreigners to Christ, their opened hearts to adore Jesus, their joyful and reverent worship, the gifts that they poured out, which point to his death and universal reign. All this shows us that in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, God is actively drawing all nations and all kinds of people, even the least likely kinds of people, to know and enjoy and worship his son. The question I have for you as we close this morning is, do you know him? Not about him. Do you know him? And the next question is, do you enjoy him? When you you approach Christ by faith, is your heart filled with exceeding joy? in him and do you worship him
Do you worship Jesus Christ? Is he king of your heart and there is no other king? Behold your king. Before him, lowly bend. Come and worship your king. Let's, let's pray.